0: Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, and today we are talking to Professor Smadar Lavi on her book, Wrapped in the Flag of Israel, Mizrahi Single Mothers and Bureaucratic Torture. Lavi analyzes in this book the racial and gender justice protests movement in Israel. She suggests that Israeli bureaucracy is based on a theological notion that inserts the categories of religion, gender, and race into the foundation of citizenship. The book is now published in a revised and updated edition with a new afterword by the author. Professor Lavi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, the book takes the story of uh, Vicky Knafo protest as a case that brings to the fore many of your themes. Can you remind our listeners who is Knafo and what brought her to the center of Israel's public life in the summer of 2003?
1: Vicky Knafo is a single mother uh, who is Mizrahi uh, Mizrachim are Jews who immigrated to Israel beginning in 1882 uh, mainly from the Arab and the Muslim world uh, they constitute about 50% of Israel's citizenry uh, some of them also come from the Ottoman margins of uh, Europe um, and they are Juxtaposed or live together in Israel with um, 30% Ashkenazim, who are Jews uh, that I guess group together because of a linguistic common denominator. They come from Yiddish speaking countries. And the rest of the citizens are 20% Palestinians who were allowed to stay in Israel after the big expulsion uh, from 1948, where 750,000 from the 900,000 Palestinians who lived in Palestine were expelled in order to make uh, room for the Jewish state on mandatory Palestine. So Vicky is a Mizrahi. She marched on Jerusalem because of uh, neoliberal policies that were enacted by Benjamin Netanyahu when he was the finance minister. Uh, These policies cut welfare allowances to mothers to something like $100 a month. Um, These policies were enacted in June, which is what drove her to march, but Actually, the law was retroactive and it was to be enacted from January of 2003 so actually it put single mothers in retroactive debt to the government from two- January on so they were left bereft of any kind of welfare support, rent support, etc. So they decided to march on Jerusalem. She started to march, other single mothers from the far flung corners of Israel joined her and And they established an encampment called Knafoland in front of the finance ministry in Government Hill in Jerusalem.
0: So uh, why is this story so important? What its historical meaning?
1: I don't know if her story in particular is important. I'm an anthropologist and I work with a decolonized version of the Manchester School case study in which an anthropologist takes an event that happened in a specific space and draws threads from it to larger uh, socio-political, economic, gender and sex, religion and spirituality questions that are threaded into the event itself. So I took Knafo as a case study of protest in order to show why Mizrahi uh, women or Mizrahi feminists do have agency, but when they enact it, it falls flat Um, perhaps because I have my criticism with the uh, social scientists of the progressive variety uh, being uh, very much still tied to the modernist trope of empowering the little guy or the little woman through imbuing them with agency. And I wanted to explore situations Mm -hmm. where agency falls flat. And I think the Knafo the Knafo march uh, and the Knafo protest movement that ended when a Palestinian suicide bomber uh, blew himself up in Jerusalem uh, where the old 1967 border used to be. And then the mothers just in for the sake of national unity, they left their encampment and went home. Uh, it shows that agency Mizrahi agency falls flat when the Palestine-Israel conflict manifests itself. The news and the media get immediately going back to this um, very comfortable binary of Israel-Palestine that is very easily digestible by the consumers of of foreign media. And the relationship between intra-Jewish racism in Israel and the larger context of the Israel-Palestine conflict goes away.
0: Now uh, you use uh, knafus story as well as your own auto ethnography to present a new concept that of uh, bureaucratic torture or of the bureaucracy of the state's welfare system as torture now as you see, insist I'm sorry this is not a metaphorical torture but rather it's a real corporal torture can you explain this
1: uh, yeah uh, I'm talking about a torture that cannot be expressed in words. It's like pre-discursive. Uh, usually torture is expressed in words, and it's part of the healing also from the torture. But if we explore the Mariam Webster dictionary, first definition of torture, I think it calls for an or it defines it as an anguish of the body and mind or something that causes agony or pain, And then epidemiologists draw direct lines between chronic bureaucratic entanglements, hypertension, chronic pain, and death. So the manner in which bureaucracy is used as a tool of governance or a tool of uh, creating a docile citizen body uh, among both Jews and Palestinians in Israel is a major state crime. And this kind of torture, or part of the legal definition or human right definition of torture, uh, is major state crime. So if we take the Webster-Mariam definition of torture, the epidemiological study on the impact of bureaucracy on people's bodies and people's health, it's a cumulative Impact, it kills you every day, bit, every day, bit. And we take the definition of major state crimes and we look at the death rate, the premature death rate of single mothers in Israel from stress-related ailments, that's torture. Furthermore, oftentimes, in order for women to get their benefits from the welfare officials, they are pressed into giving sexual favors to the clerk, most often a blowjob that is done in his office, uh, oftentimes when the children are are present. Sometimes when the welfare official does a home visit to verify the conditions of need, uh, the mother and her children feel obliged to, to provide sexual favors to the welfare official. That's torture as well. It's sexual torture. It's sexual abuse. Uh, when I came out with my data, and I have over 100 interviews of women who testify as to providing, being pressed to provide sexual favors in lieu of, favor, of, of, of welfare, uh, people defined me as extremist, and they just said that I'm hallucinating, and it can't be that this is taking place in a welfare state such as Israel. A year ago, a group of single mothers who are also housing rights activists uh, produced a photographic exhibit uh, of their condition and also uh, a very central figure in Israel mainstream media, Amnon Levi, produced a film where he interviewed survivors of sexual abuse by welfare officials uh, and the women provide testimonials uh, of the situation of them as little girls being forced to have sex with uh, welfare officials and their mothers being forced to uh, have sex with welfare officials and then them as welfare mothers repeating the t- cycle because it's intergenerational so now no one anymore tells me that i'm extreme and hallucinating because it was documented by a top journalist from israel's mainstream media
0: mm-hmm. yes now uh moving on to another theme another central theme in uh, in the book one of the most interesting chapters in the book has to do with the question of uh, a question that seems to baffle the Israeli left, namely the Mizrahi historical support for the political right in Israel. By the left's own self understanding, Mizrahim voting for the right are actually hurting their own interest and they should vote for the left. Uh, you depict a rather different historical and political picture. Can you present your argument in some detail on this regard?
1: Yes. Uh, Zionism from its onset, had a very strong streak of uh, socialism coming from uh, Eastern Europe before and after the Russian Revolution. Uh, Eastern Europe has a very strict racial classificatory order. Um, If you also go and visit Jewish museums in uh, major uh, cities in Lithuania where there were I mean, which are the birthplace of Zionist thinkers like Vilnius, like Kaunas, uh, or like Kriga. Um, it throws light, and and you look at the uh, segregation uh, and class- racial classification that Eastern Europeans make between Europeans and white Europeans and. Other Europeans, and you also look at their zero refugee acceptance policy nowadays, you understand how that kind of racial t- typ- typification traveled to Zionism. So it was the socialist Zionist left that created the ideology of racial classification and enacted it in form of policy, because the socialist Zionist left was the one uh, behind the foundation of the State of Israel, the one behind the uh, labor, labor union, and the whole ideology of um, socialism, uh, in which the Mizrahim sometimes were called like uh, little, dark uh, domestic animals. As far and other times, uh, like w- one famous socialist leader gave a speech in which he encouraged the Khalutim or the pioneers not to rape their domestic Yemeni servants. Um, Mizrahim, uh, the Yemeni laborers at the time, uh, were dealt with violent measures harsher than the Palestinian laborers because the Palestinians had the know-how given that they were the indigenous population. So in some points, the Zionist colonizers depended on them. So Mizrahim have a very long memory on for example, the harsh violence with which their uh, attempts to unionize in 1922 as farm workers were encountered, their expulsion from places which are like um, the Mayflower migration sites of uh, the Zionist socialist movement like Kibbutz Kinneret. And then the way that they were rejected from the pre-state military effort of organizing, uh, from organize, organizations like the Haganah, the Palmach, they were only accepted as like look alike Arabs doing spy jobs, while the extreme right organizations such as Irgun or the Stern Gangs, the Lehi, um, used Mizrahi ghettos and barrios. Uh, to hide weapons from the British, and this kind of gives you prestige points in the narratives of Zionism. Then Uh, It was Ben-Gurion and the labor who orchestrated the mass migration, the transit camps, uh, the physical and sexual abuse that occurred in the transit camps, the kidnapping of Mizrahi babies and selling them for adoption. Uh, It was labor members who... uh, Orchestrated the unconsented medical experiments on Mizrahim in the 50s. So Mizrahim have a very long memory as far as uh, the left talking about socialism, but it was a socialism which was white privilege. Um, wait, let's stop here. I have. Oh, uh, let me recall. Uh, one of the main items on the Zionist agenda that created a big class gap was the reparation to Holocaust survivors from Germany. So when these reparations were given to Israeli industries, again, run by Ashkenazim, uh, they basically saved Israel from becoming an economy of a banana republic and getting big national debt. However, Holocaust survivors themselves got reparations in hard cash in Deutsche Marks. The people to note that this is going to create an unresolvable class gap came from the right, not from the left. Menachem Begin was one of the major opponents of the Shilumim or the reparations, not only because he was from Poland, and uh, because of the Polish memories of Auschwitz, Birkenau, etc., but because of his vision of equity and class relations, even though he was, on the whole, for a free market economy. So a mainly good figure, a Holocaust survivor by the name of Dov Shelansky, he comes from Shauli in Lithuania, uh, unlike the majority of Jews in Shaoli who were socialist, he was a Jabotinskyite. And at that point, he worked as a car mechanic. So he did a homemade bomb. And in the temporary res- residence of the Knesset, he was to be a suicide bomber. And the date that the Knesset was voting for the reparation, he wanted to blow himself up. And he was caught as he was putting the jacket with the dynamite on himself at the toilet of the Knesset and was put to jail. And the reparation payments law passed. Uh, In jail, he studied by correspondence to become a lawyer. Uh, And he ended up the chairman of the Knesset. Mizrahim do remember that because the access to Home ownership in Israel and living in good areas where there are good schools and good civic services is in direct relationship to the access to reparation money. And reparation money also gives intergenerational wealth and the intergenerational passing of wealth is what facilitates home ownership in Israel. And home ownership is also racially divided between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim.
0: As you stressed already at the opening of your book, Knafos protest failed. And this indeed is just one case in a long list of social protests in Israel that have failed. How should we understand this history of failed social activism in Israel?
1: I think that from uh, the... Rebellion of Yemeni farm workers in 1922, through the rebellion of Wadi Salib in the 50s, the Black Panthers, etc., uh, Israel would have been always on the verge of a civil war between the Mizrahim and Ashkenazim. And one of the ways to pacify or temporarily mend the seams the racial seams between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim is through creating a feeling of unity. There is even like a pop tune song which was very uh, popular um, after the seventy-three war called "Amichad Levichad Kulanu Bayachad Amichad," which is "One People, One Heart." All of us, let's sing, "One People." So Israel uses the tool of war since most wars started, uh, I mean, big-scale war or operations against Palestinians started by Israel, not as a response, but were initiated as Israel, by Israel, in, aside from 1973, which is an exception. Uh, it's very interesting if you put on a time scale the history of social protest in Israel and the history of major wars and operation against Palestinian and Arab states in Israel. And just by putting them on a timescale, you see that whenever there is a social unrest in Israel, uh, a war breaks out. And then both Mizrahim and Ashkenazim unite as a last line of Jewish defense in a sovereign Jewish state against the going, or the Arab enemy. And basically, the protest movement disintegrates I can give you an example from Gaza 2014. Um, there is a coalition of Misrahi organizations called Halon Echmadim. They're not so nice. And in English, they're, they're called the New Black Panthers. Black Panthers after the Black Panthers of Oakland and the Black Panthers of the 70s. And halonech madim is the not-so-nice or the not-so-cute, is the, the the term that Golda Meir used to define, I mean, a belittling terms of the Black Panthers of the 70s. Uh, halonech madim organized against gentrification in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv uh, had several Palestinian villages that were populated by Mizrahim. One of them uh, is Jamusin, and it's called Givata Amal Bet, or B, uh, like Labor Hill. It's like a vestige of Israel socialism in naming places. And actually, it doesn't sit in the margins of Tel Aviv, but it sits in a primetime real estate uh land between Ichilov hospital and the military um, central command or like the Tel Aviv Pentagon and um, but it is a bunch of shacks and it has been subject to the same residential regulations as refugee camps in the West Bank which comes from the British so people from Givat Malbet received orders for expulsion, demolition of their homes, and expulsion. A group of activists organized, and what was interesting is that now that some of the pro-Palestine activists, like anarchists against the fence, who are mainly Ashkenazi Jews, and kids from the ISM, the International Solidarity Movement, who act as human shields, Two the West Bankers also streamed to Givatamalbet, and they prepared for mass demonstrations that was hap- to happen in the spring, in the late spring and early summer against the planned expulsions and demolitions. Now, why summer? Summer is a good time for Mizrahi or Israeli protest because the kids are out of school. You can take them and build tents. Uh, If you go and have like a tent protest, uh, it saves your kids from sending them to like summer camp because good Ashkenazi souls will come and volunteer and get your kids busy. And summer also is when people are served with eviction notices, assuming that... In the summer, they have the kids. They will not have time to organize and protest. And they will look for new apartments or new residents for the beginning of the school year in the fall. So these people were very serious. They threatened to blow themselves up in front of uh, The houses to be demolished. They accumulated like gas canisters and they built, they they did Molotov cocktails. And of course, the Israeli internal security always has informers in this kind of movements. This kind of movements are possible when there is a lull in the Israel-Palestine conflict because the Israel-Palestine conflict usually dominates the news. Internal news about Mizrahim make it to the international media only when there is a lull in the regular conflict. And indeed, there was a lull in the conflict coverage in winter-spring of nine, of 2014. Uh, Can you imagine how it would be televised to the world that a bunch of Jews of color, together with pro-Palestine activists, are blowing themselves up in front of the uh, caterpillars that are demolishing Jewish homes and a synagogue in central Tel Aviv? So... uh, There was something that was for concern for those entities who plan the national mood uh, of Israel and decide what goes in the media, what doesn't go in the media. And they do have a national mood planning division uh, in part of their intelligence as it was exposed to the media during the Oslo years as far as preparing the Israeli national mood for signing an agreement with Arafat that all of a sudden became a kosher kind of figure. Um, for the Oslo agreement in 1993. At any rate, what the government also wanted to pass is this kind of f- f- uh, irregular uh, addition to the arrangement law, or hokais derim, which is like neoliberalism in its best. And the government prepared to pass it in early summer, and they knew that it's going to face resistance and mass demonstration probably on the scale of the 2011 uh, uh, protest movement um, the occup- that was like the Israeli version of uh, International Occupy. What they wanted to do is to privatize 49% of the Israeli military industries, 49% of the Israeli national electrical industries, 49% of the Israeli train and port authorities, and they actually started selling them in the stock market uh, outside Tel Aviv this would not have flown very well together with more austerity measures in the Israeli public. So the way to squelch any possible resistance was to start a war. And indeed... The moment that the activists of Halon um were served with what's called Tzav, eight, Tzav, Tzav Shmone, or Order 8, which is like emergency drafting of uh, Israelis to the military in preparation for war, Some of them were harassed with old parking tickets and old bills that accrued interest and fines. And the whole atmosphere in Israel, particularly after the kidnap of the three boys, uh, was an atmosphere of war and national unity. So that resistance fell flat. And lo and behold, on the second day of the Gaza 2014 operation, the Knesset passed with Overwhelming majority, all of these privatization manor, uh, measures and uh, measures, further austerity measures as far as health care, single mother allowances, and welfare allowances. Uh, Israelis paid attention to the war. And even the Israeli media reported about this in the news like, a couple of weeks after they, they've passed. So basically, it was fait accompli. I mean, furthermore, the Knesset members managed to arrange themselves a pay raise during the Gaza war while they were petitioned by 25,000 people not to arrange for themselves for their habitual pay raise because so many people were on furloughs and took pay cuts because they were drafted into the reserve. So what was obtained was destruction of the resistance of Halon Echmadim, national unity, and further cuts in Israeli welfare authorities, and selling 49% of the Israeli military industries to private investors who ended up being like Israelis who are invested in the Singaporean stock market who are buddies from the military elite unit days of main figures of Israelis' arms dealers who are also in the political
0: circuit. Uh, The new edition of your book offers the readers uh, a new afterword, taking the readers through the uh, 2014 war, which you just mentioned, in Gaza, to the present. Uh, What argument are you making in the afterword?
1: The afterword actually dissects the two timelines from Occupy 2011, which failed, uh, to Halon and Givat Amal Bet on the one hand, and from the operation that the Israeli military, I forgot the name of it, had in 2011, right when the Occupy movement happened, which made it fall flat uh, to Gaza, two thousand fourteen. So I'm looking on the interplay between the intra-Jewish relationship and the development of the protest movement of Gaza. I mean, of again uh, of Ahmadim, which was run and still is run by Mizrahi feminists, and the international affairs with Israel, Palestine, and the region, which is basically the Saudi-Egyptian-Israeli-American alliance vis-a-vis the Palestinians in Gaza, the Hezbollah and the Hamas. And I'm looking at the fact that basically Gaza 2014 uh, cannot be separated from internal affairs, and it is like the ultimate example of my book that one cannot look at the international relations aspects of Israel-Palestine or Israel and the Arab world without understanding the intra-Jewish dynamics of the Mizrahi-Ashkenazi rift and the germinal role that women or Mizrahi feminists play in
0: it. Professor Loewi, we've taken uh, way too much of your time. Can you please tell us in closing what project you're currently working on?
1: Wrapped in the Flag started basically as a chapter in a book I was working on, which is called Crossing Borders, staying put, Mizrahi feminism and the racial formations of Israel. Uh, I went to Manchester the birthplace of the Manchester case study and I presented the chapter and my colleagues there told me, listen, you have a book, you have to do A, B, C, D and you'll have, you'll have the book. So basically the years I spent on converting wrapped uh, from a chapter to a book were a distraction from this book. In, in this book, I'm looking at how can you be right-wing and anti-racist feminist which is a state of feminism in israel why is why many mizrahi feminists or many mizrahi women will tell you yes zionism is racism and it's a racism that directed towards mizrahim but on the other hand they tell you of course a jewish state even though it's ma- mandatory palestine because the ashkenazim have options they Uh, Over one million Ashkenazi Jews equipped themselves with European Union passports um, just as a safety parachute if things in the villa in the jungle, which is the Ashkenazi definition of Israel, don't seem to work out. And then the Mizrahi feminists will tell you, where will we go? To Tunisia? To Iraq? To Iran? To Yemen? We are staying. And we need to protect what we have. So I'm looking at this kind of a very paradoxical feminist predicament, and how, in a sense, it has the the right wing has served Mizrahi communities, uh, and also there is a gap between the feminist Mizrahi feminist leadership and Mizrahi women, because the feminist leadership actually understands. I mean, thinking very similar lines to the Ashkenazi uh, intelligentsia about the Israel Palestine conflict. That is, um, they're divided between socialist Zionists, uh, post Zionists, and anti Zionists, which are exactly the divisions of the Ashkenazi left. However, they are way more sensitive to the relationship between Mizrahi-Ashkenazi race relations and the Palestine conflict. And they have a dilemma because their communities are right-wing, because of the reasons I mentioned, or the history of the left in establishing, creating, and and feeding the uh, Ashkenazi racism against Mizrahi. So when you run an NGO, you have projects. And for the projects, you need to have constituencies, because the projects are what you get funding with. And Mizrahi feminists decided to have a strategic silence on the question of Palestine so that they can run projects in the Mizrahi communities, which are right-wing. So I'm looking at all of these dynamics of right-wing constituencies, uh, left-of-center, even way left-of-center Mizrahi feminist leadership, and the concessions and compromises and and middle grounds that they need to find in order to run a movement. And today, Mizrahi feminism is the largest movement in Israel because it compasses women from all walks of life. Starting from unemployed single mothers and ending f- with underemployed uh, Mizrahi faculty women in Israeli academic institutions, small business owners, attorneys, accountants, factory workers, etc. Because it's a feminism that is mainly dedicated to the betterment of everyday life of Israeli women as far as health. Uh, safety, uh, education, uh, employment rights or labor rights, while other Israeli feminisms are way more sectarian or they have a topic that they deal with, like peace or rape prevention or uh, trafficking women and children. While Mizrahi, and these are like topics that, not so much affect the everyday fabric of life of women in ghettos and barriers, and Mizrahi feminism deals with the everyday, and that's how it managed to generate such a large movement of women from the whole, mainly from the whole political gamut of the Israeli politics, though mainly, again, the Israeli public is moving all the time to the right uh, because, in a sense, it's a very very reconciliatory feminism. And I'm looking at the price that the feminist leadership pays in order to work in such a large coalition that seems to do good for mainly mothers and children. Who are Mizrahi and in that sense also to Klal Israel
0: Sounds like a most interesting project where well, I'm looking forward to reading this Smadavi uh, thank you for participating in the show
1: Thank you